Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is Jonathan Becker, founder of Thrive Digital. Now, paid growth is a complex topic. It's something that we reference quite a bit on this show, but we've never really dug in. Jonathan and his team at Thrive have deployed over $3.5 billion in paid acquisition budgets on behalf of the client base at Thrive. And naturally, that makes him an ideal guest to dig deeper. So in the conversation, we draw it on parallels to investing, how John and Thrive approach campaigns and what metrics that they're looking at, what the rules of thumb really are, and Jonathan's general philosophy on marketing as a whole. Without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Jonathan Becker. All right, Jonathan, we are excited to have you with us on Making Media for a variety of different reasons. We really want to get into the meat of what you do. We've listened to you on other podcasts. We followed what you've done. And we were kicking around where to start. And before we were hitting record, we were talking about the similarities between a marketing budget and thinking about advertising and how that compares to investing, value investing, any type of investing. And that's just a great place, I think, to kick off this conversation, given our backgrounds, given how you made that connection. So maybe we start there. And if you could just give the thumbnail sketch of how you would connect those two categories, that would be great. Absolutely. And firstly, Matt and Dom, thanks so much for having me on the show today. I'm a big fan and it's just exciting to get an opportunity to chat with you. So I think to connect the dots between what I do, which is ultimately media buying, performance marketing, brand buying, whatever you want to call it, and investing, I have to roll back time a little bit. So when I started Thrive, it was essentially me and my co-founder, Brent MacArthur, in an old sweaty apartment. We worked out of a walk-in closet. We both were moonlighting at the time. And both of us had expertise in managing what was then called Google AdWords. Facebook ads hadn't really become a thing yet. There were other forms of media buying too. And the more we explored this and got into being practitioners of what is now referred to as performance marketing, which is really the expectation of a return on the initial investment made in ad budgets, we realized that every single keyword in Google search was really just an audience. And I, at the time, was reading, I think, a book on value investing, something that covered maybe some of the works of Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. And what I learned is that the concept of value investing is really about finding undervalued operating companies that may have been overlooked in the market somehow. 
when we thought about media buying, what we realized is that a lot of the inventory that was available to us was undervalued assets in that marketplace that people weren't bidding upon that held considerable value for our clients. And so we became a little bit agnostic as to which channels we were operating on, whether it was Google or later Facebook or programmatic, as long as the clicks ultimately and the traffic we were buying conformed to the marketing economics of the project we were working on. And that was the case for Uber, for Asana, for all kinds of work that we did for Lululemon. We worked with Laureen Jobs, Steve Jobs' wife, for a long time. And so all of this ended up adding up in that way. And so we borrowed the analogy of the marketing funnel from offline media. And the way I think about this is when you're investing in stocks or buying businesses, you run a process up front, you essentially place a bet, and then you wait for the outcome to occur. And there's various forms of measurement that can occur between making the bet and the outcome. It's actually the same when we think about investing in performance marketing audiences using the funnel. So there is a top of funnel where we're essentially developing a thesis and doing some due diligence on audiences and then the base of the funnel where we convert folks. And so there's just a ton of parallels between that process. The crux of value investing is finding those mispriced opportunities that you talked about. In very practical terms, how would you find them? Often investing, people talk about looking in areas that are underserved by analysts. So actually, when you go and do the work, you are one of a very few number of people. And then you need to then go convince the market that this business is worth this thing, or you just wait a long enough time for the market to appreciate what the business is actually worth. How does that translate into the work that you are doing? Yeah, it's such a great question. The parallel there in what we do is understanding the lifetime value of customers and then backing out into where those customers were derived from, from an audience and click point of view, and then making bets essentially on which clicks and inventory we want to purchase, knowing that they have a high likelihood to yield higher quality customers. So the problem in our market generally is that most people don't do that. They focus on the cost of a click and they say $20 a click, that seems crazy. Like, why would I ever do that? When in fact, it's $20 a click because everybody's bidding on the highest quality customer, whether they know it or not, those terms then become the most competitive and subsequently yield the highest value customers. It's very difficult to join those two ideas, the determination of cost per click or something like that to LTV. It's not like a linear process. There's different tools involved. There's different processes involved. There's some subjectivity to it, just like investing, quite frankly. But essentially, that would be how we would think about that. When you think about finding the channels, mediums, areas in order to be purchasing from. So if I'm just to use real world examples, I think there was a lot of success for a very long time using Instagram ads. At some point, those became more and more expensive. And you hear, or at least we hear, of different platforms that people are moving to and they're starting to see more success on TikTok or maybe on Facebook video, or you pick your platform. How do you go about finding those undiscovered and unique opportunities that might exist for short periods of time? How much work goes into that? And how would you theoretically even go about that? That's what I think about in terms of, from an investing perspective, finding the less common path where you might see major success. How does that work from your side of things? 
Yeah, it's an interesting process. So psychologically, we just think about this whole world of different options that we have in terms of where we're placing ad dollars as the sum of clicks, impressions, and audiences. So as I mentioned earlier, I am agnostic as to where those clicks come from so long as they conform to the marketing economics of the project that we're serving. So what that turns into, what that allows for then is placing budget and exploring all kinds of different platforms in search of ad inventory that is profitable for the client. Generally, what happens is we'll see, you mentioned Instagram, Google and Facebook in the digital marketing world, in the context of performance marketing, are still the two best places to place ad dollars. So it doesn't matter what the Wall Street Journal is talking about or whether your friend who happens to run ads on Facebook ads or Meta says one thing or another. Generally speaking, these companies are still making $30, $40 billion a quarter in revenue. And that represents the largest 800-pound gorillas in the sector. And that is because they tend to be the easiest, in quotations, platforms to work with if you're seeking a return on investment. That said, ads on Amazon are a real thing, and they are starting to make up uh, 10% of the market this year. TikTok is a very interesting new opportunity in terms of where to place inventory. In past, you know, we've seen interest in Snap. That came and went. LinkedIn is always a little bit touch and go. People ask us about Reddit and Quora and all these platforms, Pinterest, that people have wanted to explore in search and hope that there's additional opportunity for scale. But essentially, all we have to do is determine where their audiences fit into our funnel, look at the expectations of the performance of those audiences based on the economics of the project, and it becomes a bit of a yes or no question. We can do channel exploration, but did it achieve the result that we wanted? Time is a big part of this. Sometimes it's obvious, and in the first few weeks, we're like, wow, there's really something here. In other cases, it can take months, sometimes a year. It's all over the place. But we, as an industry, are always looking for new opportunities to grow. And so when opportunities like TikTok, when new channels and platforms like TikTok pop up, or other things like Amazon or programmatic or whatever it may be, we test them a lot. And so what you'll find is it's kind of an 80-20 thing. Brands will put 80% of their budget behind what they know works, what's been proved out over the last one to 10 years, depending on how long they've been doing this. And then they'll often test with around 20% of their budget. We get to do fun, creative things. You'll have to forgive me for this question because I'm a total amateur when it comes to this stuff. But in traditionally, marketing is thought of as a cost center within a business. We have to spend the money to be able to attract the customers. We're never quite sure whether there's a decent payback on that spend. Performance marketing is bread and butter. Is that linkage between I see the result of the money that I'm spending? But what does good look like in simple economic terms? If I were to spend £100 or $100 with you, what should I be looking at over what period of time? I would love for all of your reflections on that general concept. I love this question. So it's different in different circumstances. I will start by saying that Thrive gets hired because people want to have a sense of what the return on investment is for media budgets. And the expectation is that they will get more back than they invest. Performance marketing, to the other part of your question, is a subset of the broader marketing spectrum where the idea is that things can be attributed and measured better than offline media or top of funnel media. 
that kind of thing. It's not necessarily true that we are capable of attributing a dollar spent to a dollar earned all the time. It's still a fuzzy area. And ironically, the technology has got worse over the years, not better. And that's mostly because of really important considerations like people's privacy. So there's been a number of things that governments and various governing bodies have demanded of the industry, rightfully so, that have caused the industry to not use first-party data in a certain way or caused Apple, frankly, to get ahead of certain privacy considerations with what it did with iOS 14.5 and just really cut the linkage between ad platforms' ability to use certain types of data and what an iPhone collects type thing. There's GDPR. There's a number of different examples of this. And so the core of your question, I think, is what should you expect back if you spend 100 pounds? Generally, in our industry, an excellent return on investment is anywhere between 2 to 3x. So I'm a business owner. I've built a fairly large media buying company. If I spend a dollar and I make 2 or $3 back, I will take that deal all day long. The issue is where you start to scale and we start to see diminishing rates of return. So that 100 pounds, if I'm getting you a 10 to 1, if you then give me 10 million pounds or $10 million, the return is not going to be the same. And so the expectations around that shift, the types of work that we do to manage a spend, that smaller, that large shift, the types of support that is required to ensure that it is in fact ideally profitable, that changes. It's complicated, but but generally speaking, success means that we're giving people three, four bucks back for every dollar spent. Over what time frame would that be? So we work with companies for years. Project with Uber was over 10 years, but we measure more or less on a weekly or monthly cadence. And so we are always targeting an ROAS, return on amount spent of a certain amount, right? Like 300%, 400%, 200%. It depends on the scale. Time is one of the most important active ingredients to this. So when a project has been tested and the inventory that we're purchasing is an investment in that 80% that we know the economics of that I talked about a little bit earlier, we're measuring on a daily, weekly, monthly cadence to ensure that performance conforms to our expectations of what we've seen before. When a project is net new, though, let's pretend a client comes to us and has never, ever worked with us before. Generally, they're not going to see the results that they probably want for the first two to three months. It's not to say that it's not impossible, but there's a lot of infrastructure that we set up. There's a lot of tests that we have to set up. Creative is a big part of this. There's all kinds of resourcing on our end and the client side that needs to be aligned. It takes a bit of a push to get the machine working. And then it can take a couple of years for them to scale. If I say, hey, I got you a 10 to 1 on a $100 investment, you probably don't care. It's not really going to make you get out of bed in the morning as a business owner. If I say, hey, you spent 10 million this year, I made you 30 million. We're going to talk about that. And there's a lot of different things that need to happen to enable that. But that's a normal example for what Thrive does. I use three times LTV to CAC ratio at dinner parties. Can I still use that as rule of thumb when referencing what a reasonable return is? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's very subjective. We have some folks that we've worked with over the years that are really happy when they achieve a one-to-one for whatever reason. 
the lens has shifted in the markets these days. People are much more focused on profitability, whereas the first decade that I was in business out of Silicon Valley, it was growth, growth, growth. And so you had companies that were willing to lose money sometimes. I do not like those projects, by the way. Someone ends up holding the bag at the end of the day at some point. And then you had projects where they may have been more or less focused on profitability. You can think about that question from the perspective of just being a business owner and saying, what do I feel is reasonable on any investment that I make? As a business owner, there's multiple types of investments that you make in personnel, in different departments, in marketing, in product. All of them have to have some form of return. For me, it stands to reason that any form of profit is probably worth looking at. The irony, again, when I think about investing is that if I am a fund manager on Wall Street and I have a billion dollars under management and I get you 7% or 8% back a year, I'm a hero every year if I can do that. The expectations on us are two, 300, 400%. And so it puts things in comparison when you think about it that way. How much does the calculus change when it comes to products? If you take a typical consumer product, something that's in the $10 to $100 range, there obviously can be an immediate response and you can see that flow through versus a software tool, which might cost $10,000, $30,000 a year to use. And it's a very specific person who can actually make that buying decision. So how does it work once you move into that more B2B category into those tools in terms of seeing the success? And how does the strategy just change in general? Yeah, it's very interesting. So fundamentally, the mechanics of what we do are homogenous, believe it or not, across most styles of project. And again, time is generally the differentiating factor here. So the return on investment, the expectations thereof at scale tend to actually be the same. Both those companies, an e-com versus SaaS company, probably want two to four X at scale on their investment. The difference is in our expectation of the payback period. And there are subsets to this conversation. But to generalize, you are quite right that a direct e-commerce purchase, the money's in the bank right away, the purchase has been made. And so the return on investment may be a little bit faster, asterisk, because there's some considerations there. A lead generation project, whether it's B2B or B2C, has a latency between, let's say, the first click and the person actually filling out a form or then taking an action in the form of making a purchase. That can be anywhere between a month or 24 months, depending on how big the purchase is. The channels themselves don't actually change that much. You got a big boomer generation on Facebook still scrolling. A lot of 50-year-olds in the IT department that are checking on their children and grandchildren at the same time. They might want to make a big buying decision. Do the budget shift a lot between channels when it comes to those longer lead time, very high-priced products? Surprisingly, not really. So the style of campaign that we use, the metrics that govern targeting and success are obviously different. The supporting cast of characters in terms of tools that we use, the lexicon might be slightly different. But in all truth, like I said earlier, most money in performance marketing, no matter what anybody says, is still generally spent on Google and on Facebook and Meta. It's spent there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most valuable. Obviously, you're going to draw the line 
it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if it's, well, it's most spent there, so we should spend there. That's why I buy IBM. But it's not to say that it's necessarily the highest return. I think there are two very different things. I'm curious, is it still the case where that is always the highest return spend as well? So we're getting into generalizations, I think, because two lead gen projects, for instance, might be quite a lot different from one another in terms of what works. And so again, the 80-20 of this is that, yes, we again, just to take a step back, in my career, I've overseen the management of probably $4 billion in performance budgets at this point. We have the expectation of return on that money. And generally, we are able to more often than not achieve those returns by purchasing inventory on Google ads and meta ads. Now, there's nuance to that. In some cases, we work on projects and it turns out that LinkedIn is an amazing lead generation opportunity for someone or a programmatic display has outstanding results. App download campaigns are incredible or influencer partnerships are incredible. Inventory on podcasts work really well, whatever it may be. Again, I'm speaking in a bit of 80-20, but generally, I don't believe most of the spend that occurs on Google ads or meta ads is speculative. The big, big spenders that, that will spend tens of millions of dollars on these platforms a year or in a month, they're not doing that by accident. They have huge teams of people who do this professionally and have to be responsible to performance and be able to answer tough questions about performance. They have partners like us, like Thrive in place that are in charge of testing, validation, scale. And so by the time the money is spent, Generally speaking, what we have seen is that it is working within their expectations. That brings up another good point, which you referenced before, which is the scale factor, which is Meta and Google actually have the inventory and the amount that you can actually fulfill whatever that budget is, you can meet that via them. Whereas some of the smaller channels might have less inventory, you can definitely cap out, you start to see diminishing returns. I guess when it comes to smaller businesses with smaller budgets, generalizing a bit here, but do you think that is still the case with those smaller businesses when you work with companies which are maybe still in the earlier stages? It Does that shift at all in terms of budgeting and maybe a willingness to spend more on some of the smaller platforms? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the scale of company question is that a lot of times larger organizations get stuck doing things a certain way. It's working. So don't break the mold. Whereas we see some real creativity with these earlier stage companies that come to us or even just forget about our clients, just what I observe in the market at large. And so we see more experimentation there. I also see people doing loophole type things. Like sometimes they'll find a particular kink in the armor of one of these platforms and they'll really exploit and scale it in a really clever, funny way. Um, and then, of course, that disappears. That opportunity changes as the platforms evolve and shift. But I would say that a lot of earlier stage companies, particularly in D2C right now, are more heavily indexed on TikTok. So a lot of smaller, newer, earlier companies are on TikTok. We see a lot of them also on Amazon. But certainly, we see more innovation on the newer company side of things. Which I think might be a nice segue into the world of podcasting. And Spotify is in many ways trying to centralize the advertising space for podcasts. They think there's an opportunity there. It will help their margins if they can. Have you spent much or any money on Spotify? And how do you see that ecosystem developing? Yeah, so I love 
the audio inventory sector. The issues I think that we run into is measurement related predominantly. So it's just so far been very difficult to measure easily the results and attribute what you were asking me about earlier, a dollar spent versus a dollar or two earned, or is it actually a negative investment? Generally, when we measure the impact of an audio ad campaign, it at first looks like it's negative. That's a broad generalization. And the irony is that I know that this works because there are companies like Athletic Greens that have scaled beautifully off of podcast. There's all kinds of SaaS companies that have purchased inventory and whatnot. And so it becomes a question of how do you measure brand recall? How do you measure top of funnel impact? How do you attribute hearing the name of a particular brand as a sponsor of a podcast like this, and then attributing that to a Google search that they did for the name of that company typing? Who takes credit for that? Whether Spotify is going to win this battle or not, I don't know. I think there is absolutely an opportunity for consolidation in the market. So the market is much more mature than it was when I first got into this business, where podcasting was like this outlying weird tangential thing that people did. Now, when I speak to the average person, of course, they listen to a podcast. What's your favorite podcast type thing? And they probably remember who the sponsors are too. I guess to the question, I see it as a very exciting opportunity. It hasn't fully gelled yet. It's still actually a little bit difficult to convince some of the larger advertisers that this is an excellent place for them to put a really meaningful investment. And the reason for that, at least in the context of performance marketing, is difficulty in measurement and attribution. I think that will play out well for the podcasting universe. I think that there will be some consolidation. Maybe it will be Spotify. Maybe Spotify will help to solve that problem. I also should mention that my world of performance-based ad buying is not the only segment of that market. There's a lot of brand media buyers who have different expectations about returns or just the thinking around why and how they should place ad buys is completely different. So whereas I don't care who the customer is, so to speak, I care about the economics of how they clicked and then purchased. A brand media buyer tends to presuppose who the audience is and where they're spending time. And so that could be on television. It could be on a highway where they buy billboards. It could be on Facebook or Google or TikTok. It could also be where are they consuming media through audio and where should we place ads there? And they just want to be in front of where they believe their audience is. And so that market is also massive. And I think that more dollars injected into audio through both performance and brand will ultimately result in a better experience for advertisers and more measurable inventory and so on and so forth. Yeah, it feels like Amazon started an advertising business two days ago and they're generating $40 billion. Podcasting has been around for 20 years now and it's 2 to $3 billion. It just shows you the, the difference there in terms of the measurement point, which I think is huge, and podcasting is stuck in this in-between of, oh, should this be brand advertising? Should it be performance-based? There's a lot of friction there in terms of connecting the dots. I'm curious from a philosophical standpoint about how you deal with that with your customers, where I think ultimately it requires a lot of tools built on their end or a lot of data collection done on their end in terms of salespeople asking, where did you hear about us from? Or a little bit more manual hands-on work, which is just, if you're leaving it up to them, there's more potential leakage or risk that it doesn't get measured properly. 
So in those instances, how do you work with clients on things like that, where you have some sense that it does work and you've seen some success with it, but at the same time, it's very hard to connect the dots and obviously you're acting on their behalf. So how do you deal with situations like that in that particular category? So I mentioned earlier that some of the capabilities in the industry for measurement have actually got worse over time, but that actually created an opportunity where now we have to think outside of the platform itself to validate the effectiveness of campaigns. And there's a number of different roads to the same place in that regard. And so whereas we used to be razor sharp focused on real true performance media, like paid search is a really good example, the classic example of performance marketing, where maybe attribution was a little bit easier and the ROI could be measured a little bit easier. Where I'm getting to and where like Thrive is getting to might be different from the rest of the industry. I'm not really sure. But essentially, I now just see all inventory as whether it's offline or online as just more opportunity to buy media. And the technology that we would use to measure and validate success between different forms of digital media and even different forms of offline media are starting to actually just be the same. So we're using the same tools at this point. It's evolved to that place. And so when I think about your question of if I have high conviction over an investment in audio podcast ad units for a particular brand, how do I pitch that? Or how do I show them? First, I'd say, well, this is going to be part of our 20% experimentation budget. Here's why I have high conviction. But the crux is also that I say, here is the testing plan. Here are the questions that we want to have answered. And here's how we're going to measure it three different ways. And so we're validating our validation and validating the validation of our validation in certain cases. That sounds like overkill, but that's what's necessary. And the irony here is we don't buy television ads. And yet some of our clients often will say, hey, Thrive, we're going to launch this campaign in Q1. We know you're not buying the media, but can you put a testing plan together in order to validate whether it had an impact or not on revenue? And so we're already in those situations where we're asked to support brands that are thinking that way or making those investments. And so the more we evolve, Thrive is currently a performance marketing company, but I think we're going to get to the point where we're just buying different media, whether it's classic performance marketing or not, but through a performance lens where we're capable of saying, we're just going to do this better than you've done it before. We're going to set up capabilities to measure it better, to validate it better, and ultimately attribute whether revenue was generated from this spend that you made. And so your question around how do we think about pitching audio when we have these problems, it rolls back into that where you can't just say, hey, you should do this. I think it will work. It has to be a part of a test one way or the other. And you have to have a testing plan and a beginning, middle and end to that process so that you show value one way or the other. One thing I want to mention is that we're talking about a lot of these outcomes where the result is a return on investment, but some of the best testing that we've done proved to people that there was no return. And that's an important learning because maybe they've been spending there for a really long time and suddenly we're like, don't put it here instead because this actually works. Can you talk a little bit about those validation points? And I can think of an example being having a salesperson ask where the lead came from and something along those lines. But what types of tests are you adding in or finding ways to validate the results? 
what you're talking about is more of a like direct response survey. That is actually a good methodology for trying to validate, you know, particular results. And you'll see on Facebook and TikTok, occasionally you'll be served a survey. It's like, where did you hear about this brand? Or do you remember seeing this ad? Or it'll ask you specific things about a particular campaign that you saw. And so that is generally a good method of determining a relationship between what you spent and some sort of impact that it had. The problem is that most people don't like responding to those surveys. And so you get a subset of an audience that is likely to respond to a survey and you then have to determine whether that's a good representation of the broader audience or not. We tend to think about other forms of validation through attribution modeling. So I won't get deep into this, but there's all kinds of different attribution models around first touch, weighted attribution or last touch, where you essentially are somewhat subjectively determining how revenue is credited back to audiences that you are purchasing into. So attribution for 10, 15 years was the way that people predominantly did this. And it was a bit of a subjective discussion. These days, we're using third-party tools more to validate. So you might see tools like Recast, where we actually can build our own media mix modeling, but uh, Recast is a good third-party partner where they have a reasonable approach to building essentially an algorithm that you input where you spent uh, dollars and where you spent them and information on revenue. And it attempts to, through causal calculations, determine the ROI of what you did and the impact. And then another form of validation is uh, stuff like geo holdout testing. So Geo holdout testing essentially means that we're trying to run a scientific experiment where there are controls in place. And some of those controls take the form of not spending in particular markets when all other conditions, so to speak, are equal. And then determining, was there a lift in only markets that had spend versus the control market where there was no spend? And the results are not always black and white. When I say scientific in the context of testing, a true scientific experiment not only has controls, but variables are limited, right? So you have a thesis, the testing conditions are as specific as possible without erroneous variables in play, and et cetera, et cetera. In the real world, it's kind of impossible to do that. There's just too much going on. There's too many variables. There's too many things that we know we can't control. And then there's this whole world of things that we don't know that we don't know that we can't control. And that's where it becomes very interesting in terms of whether the results are real or true or not. These are some of the leading ways that we are starting to think about the validation question. And it's quite sophisticated. We have a whole team dedicated to data science and the pursuit of experimentation and validating results. We've talked about podcasting from the perspective of buying inventory on podcasts to grow other businesses. There's one question I have to ask you, which came in at the very beginning of our show, almost this time last year, we spoke to an OG in the podcasting world who said, almost as a direct quote, I've never seen a dollar spent on growth in podcasting that's worked. I would love to hear you talk about why that might not be true. And I think there are some legitimate criticisms or difficulties with podcasting as to why it might be challenging to spend money on growth because of the inherent friction of if you were to show someone an ad for a podcast, you then need to show them seven different links of different podcast players. They then need to click through to that. They then need to sit through a few ads until they finally get to the show. That would be his argument. I would love to hear you react to it. So in any advertising, there is a real thing called good taste. 
if before this show, there were 40 ads from random companies and the copy was weird, it would be very off-putting to me. And I'd be like, I'm out of here type thing. The best ads that I've seen are contextual. I'm talking specifically in the context now of audio inventory at large. And then also it makes sense in other formats as well, but they will work in a sponsorship that makes sense for a particular guest that they have, or the sponsor has something to do with the theme of the show and whatnot. The devil's in the details a little bit. So I have a friend who runs an agency, a product agency. They have been a sponsor of a particular podcast for several years. They're the title sponsor. And he swears by the number of leads that they have received. Can the podcast itself measure that? No. Can the host validate it? Absolutely not. Does he have positive attribution and the results of testing? Not really. But what he does have are salespeople that ask the question, hey, where did you hear about us? And they mention Shane Parrish's show or whatever it is. That's the truth. The person's like, yeah, I heard about you here. That's how I heard about you. And those ads for that particular company have been in context quite a bit. And it's talked about and presented in a very thoughtful, curated manner where it's solving business problems for business owners or whatever, right? And so I think it has to do with this taste question of how are the ads presented? Is it done in a crude manner? Is the podcast just taking the dollars because it's a huge advertiser, but they're selling toilet paper on a show that's about business insights? Does that work? Probably not. And so the context matters. What about if we're trying to grow making media? Would you advise us for or against buying ads either on other podcasts, which tends to be the advice or into other channels going out on Instagram and buying ads to say, hey, go listen to making media? Yeah, it's interesting. So yes and no. I think it depends what stage you're at. Most of the podcasts that I've seen succeed over time have more of an organic growth curve. And so there are really interesting people being interviewed. The sound bites are very captivating. I see a headline and it's really interesting and engaging. So I send it to my friends. It's very topical in terms of what's in the news. That's how I've seen that work. Huberman is a really good example of this. He had a lot to say about various topics that were incredibly topical. So everything from alcohol and how it actually just turns out it's poison in the face of, I think it was like the Times or the Wall Street Journal that broke a story about some of the studies around a glass of wine every day is really healthy for you being false. And then Huberman does this huge expose on it and so gets so many views and engagement and interest. Now he's super famous, whereas five years ago, maybe less famous type thing. And so would I say on day number one, should you go out and buy a bunch of ads? It depends on what your expectations are of those ads. I would say you're probably better served cross-marketing through the Colossus network. So as you know, I think one of you is literally the CEO of Colossus. So yeah, I may not actually recommend it at the earliest of stages for a specific type of business. It doesn't always work and it doesn't always work for everyone. So it's okay for someone like myself who happens to be in the business of managing spends for companies where it does work to say, and I say this to people who come to us all the time, your stage is not great for what we do, or I actually just don't think this is going to work for you. It's a super interesting challenge that we faced to your point earlier in terms of customers that know they're having success through podcast advertisement. It's very dependent on that person working with their sales team to create that system to have attribution. 
and the ones that we see have success, that's always the case. It's not to say that you could create that system and it won't result in the ROI is not there, but it is very interesting. It's a challenging industry dynamic because you would like to have more control over something along those lines. Yeah. And also, you mentioned earlier, you had a great question about return on investment in the context of a D2C brand versus a B2B or SaaS company. And I think a lot of the advertisers that I see mostly on podcasts, it actually mostly tends to be businesses selling services as opposed to athletic greens, which is disproportionately representative direct-to-consumer style ad. And so it's already harder for those companies to validate whether something is working or not because of that time question, right? The time between a click or a listen in this case and actually taking an action. And so, yeah, it's tough. And I think, honestly, this sector suffers from it being so difficult. It doesn't mean it's unsolvable, though. It's interesting because I'm biased, but it is, I think, the most intelligent and community or audience with the most buying power. Honestly, who's going to listen to this podcast? We have a lot of people that listen. Most of them are pretty advanced, senior in their careers, are thinking about things like this. It's not people that are just out and about doing their consumer activities. And I think that's an interesting thing where it also has this challenge that's connected to it. So I'll get off my biased soapbox about that part of it. <laughs> so bias is a big problem in the industry. People are like, I think this should work, or I worked before and I'm sure this would work. And sometimes we have to do what I said we do earlier, where we set up an experiment where we're like, nope, not working. I think. And people, sometimes they're receptive to that. Sometimes they are less receptive to that. I can imagine. We've sort of tiptoed around it. You talked about taste earlier. The creative element which is, I guess, the media aspect of the stuff that you're doing. What are the lessons there that you've learned? What's effective or what are the principles of creating ads that actually work on whatever channel you want to pick? Oh, for sure. So in our world, campaigns tend to be organized through the analogy of funnel. The funnel being this process a customer might go through whereby they first consider a product and they're in market for a product and then go through this process by which they become more and more likely to make a purchase. And by the time they're at the bottom of the funnel, so to speak, they're ready to make a purchase or they make a purchase. So thinking about the world that we are in that way as consumers having different stages of readiness, the most important learning from the point of view of building creative is that the conversation that you have with people at the top of funnel, so to speak, cannot be the same as the conversation you have at the base of the funnel. So in other words, creatively, the conversation you have with an audience or your customers needs to have a beginning, middle, and end. It would be weird. You asked me a question and I said the same thing to you over and over and over and over again, no matter what question you asked. But yet people do that to their audiences on digital media all the time. You see the same ad over and over and over. It might be targeted differently, but the ad still, strangely, is often the same. And so that sucks when people do that. And yet we see it all the time. It's hilarious. We've even had a few podcast guests that have done that to us. So you're not alone. <laughs> For sure. The most important thing is thinking in nuance and understanding that that conversation evolves. And so does your creative. It has to say different things and talk about different facets of what you're selling based on the person's readiness to make a purchase or not. So what we say at the top of funnel where we might be talking about a few attributes of a product, knowing that people are just in market and might be comparison shopping is different than what we would say at the base of the funnel where we say that something like, hey, we know you're about 
to make a purchase, here's 20% off just to really engage them and give them a reason to actually go through with the purchase type thing once they're highly, highly qualified. Not everybody has a discount message. I'm just using that as an example, but it's an easier to understand example than other cases maybe. This has been super interesting to learn about something I know very little about. I want to wind down with a question that you teased to us in the lead up to this conversation, and hopefully we'll flesh out some questions that we probably haven't asked in your answering of it. And you mentioned that you spent $4 billion in ads on performance marketing over the last decade or so, at least a billion of those being spent on Google. I'd love for your high level four or five lessons on what you've learned over that period. I'm sure some of which we've just talked about, but if there are other elements that you think are really interesting and important that we haven't discussed, would love for you to close out with those thoughts. Sure. Yeah. So I think what I've learned over the years is that there are a few different failure points for these campaigns. But over time, what I've seen is that the pitfalls that occur can be collected in probably three main buckets. So the first is the last thing we spoke about where the creative is bad or rendered improperly relative to an audience. So the creative itself that drives a campaign forward, whether that's the copy in a text ad, the motion graphics in a Facebook ad or video in a TikTok ad, that can't really be an afterthought. So we can't get so caught up in the targeting and measurement that we forget about the actual medium that we're on and the message of that medium. So that's probably rule number one. And I see all kinds of campaigns just fall apart on the operating table because everything is perfect except that becomes an afterthought or there's a disconnect between a brand team and a performance-driven team. They just don't make it across that chasm. So that's probably number one. I think number two is just honestly this concept of time. And so expectations around time. Again, I like to use the analogy of investing because nothing happens fast in real investing. Things happen fast when you're speculating sometimes, but the risk is huge. The risks are higher when you're making speculative investments. Whereas like a real investment, I think the idea is you invest and it takes time to see the returns that you want. And so that's a subjective point. But in a lot of cases, we'll see, particularly on the newer side of campaigns, people pull the plug on things that look very promising, but there hasn't been enough time elapsed yet. A lot of times that will happen because they're thinking about the world in the form of quarterly earnings calls or in the world of having to answer to investors that care about metrics that we're obviously chasing too, but might not happen overnight or in a two or three month period and so on and so forth. So time is an active ingredient to making this work. Then I think the third thing is you touched on this numerous times across different things you asked, but measurement infrastructure. So the data itself, what are the metrics that we're targeting and why? So to Matt, your question earlier around the difference between an e-com campaign and a lead generation campaign. Well, the sum of that is actually in the metrics that we're looking at that govern success. And are we getting more or less of those things? And do the metrics show up within the marketing economics of what the client wants? In a lot of cases, people are dead on impact because they chose the wrong metrics to begin with. And it happens strikingly frequently. So a lot of times when we're in an RFP, if someone wants to work with us, drive will audit their campaigns and we're scratching our heads being like, why are they targeting this way when it's this type of campaign? The other part of that is if you are successful, can you even see it? So do you have 
good attribution set up? And if not, do you have other validation capabilities set up like what we spoke about? Is there a media mix model in place, which I don't always recommend, but in certain cases, it makes sense. Are you doing other forms of validation of the results you're seeing that concur or not concur with the results that the platform is showing you? And so it's funny because we didn't talk about AI that much, but the world that I'm in has been heavily impacted by AI for 10 years. And at some point in the near future, your experience with Google ads will be that you will give them a credit card and a URL and it will do everything for you. And yet, do you know what the biggest thing, the biggest reason why people come to us is? It's because they don't trust the results that the platform is giving them. They're not super comfortable saying, yeah, take all my money channel, whatever it is. Now, I don't have any problems with what Google is doing or the results that we see in platform. I think Google... Meta, all these companies are actually doing their very best to give us as much information as they can to validate these campaigns. But people still want a third party to say, no, this doesn't make sense, or yes, this makes sense. And so the last point here, the third thing is, can you even see if it's working? Have you picked the right metrics? Those things are really important. And most teams don't seem to get that right. Or at least if they do get it right, they need validation that they're getting it right. People seem to always want more and more validation because in a lot of cases, these investments are frankly huge and there's a lot of people watching, rightfully so. They want reassurance that they're doing the right thing. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion and you've built an amazing business over the past decade or so. Thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom with us today. Yes, thank you. Great speaking with both of you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. All right, Dom, what do you have to say about performance marketing? I'll be honest, I'm a total newbie when it comes to this stuff. I've heard about it. I've heard of the LTV to CAC ratio, but I don't know very much about it other than what Eric Newsom told us when he said that paid growth doesn't work for podcasting. At that point, I cast it out of my mind and decided that was it. I'm not going to play this game. It was very interesting to get Jonathan's perspective on the whole thing. He's obviously spent a lot of money in this area and spent it profitably for, for people. So it was good to get someone who knows what they're talking about on the show. And it's very interesting to hear him say that the clients don't necessarily trust what's coming out of the platforms that they're working with. And that's why they go to them in order to build these tools for measurement which I think is an important piece of all this. And when we ran the experiment earlier in the year with Overcast, you get told basically what your dollars spent are returning in terms of listeners, but there's really no way to track what happens to those listeners, who they are, any of that stuff. And it's that concept of walled gardens, particularly make it very hard to make any type of comparative data when you're thinking from platform to platform. I think that is a big thing that could be solved or finding ways to solve that would be huge. That's just on the performance marketing piece of it. And then it gets into the broader marketing conversation. And it's tricky because obviously we have our own biases, but at the same time, you need to be able to see the return on what you're doing. And it's a tricky thing when it comes to ads. Totally. That bit of needing validation reminded me so much of just the whole consulting industry where you bring them in, you talk to them, and the output is what you would have done anyway, but it feels better coming from someone with Bain or one of the other groups in the email address. And I think there's more at play in this particular domain, but it really reminded me of that whole business model when he was talking about how AI wasn't going to crush the industry. Yeah, outside third parties, there's so many things that go into it. It's one of the more interesting dynamics for me. I remember 15 years ago, literally like when programmatic advertising was becoming a big thing, 
you just had so much more information. And I just thought to myself, this is a $700 billion industry, probably close to a trillion dollar industry right now. And you can actually measure so little of it. The Don Draper days of magazine ads and television commercials have such lack of data associated with them when it comes to effectiveness. And I'm like, of course, it's all going to shift to this. And it has, but I think it's left a lot to be desired. At the same time, I think you've seen brands that have literally just built themselves on the back of Instagram, Google. Yeah, the mobile gaming industry, for one, they've spent a bunch of money. That's like a weird, sick ecosystem, though, where it's very much a closed ecosystem where it's mobile games on top of mobile games on top of mobile games. So I feel like that is almost like its own conversation. But yes, using the same strategy, I guess, in some ways, or being very numbers-based. Have I told you about my organic marketing experiment this week? I put a tweet out about Ferrari, our business breakdown on Ferrari. And over 900,000 people, Matt, over 900,000 people have seen the tweet. I hesitate to make the link to how much if we've seen a bump in that feed. But $0, that's Glossus. Zero. Wow. Well, Twitter, if that's the only way we're going to measure things, then you're good to go there. He said it, right? Organic is always the best way to grow things. Yeah, that was actually the segue I was trying to make when I was asking him about podcast growth. Because I think it comes down to a level of authenticity. And he talked on Lenny's podcast really eloquently about the creative element of making these ads when you host them on whatever platform. Like You want it to feel super authentic. And often, if you can get an influencer or someone to shoot a pretty low-res video on their phone or something, that's going to convert and perform much better than asking a brand agency to put together this really shiny video with lots of flashing lights and stuff. And to bring it back to my tweet, that was just one man in his garage, just pressing a few buttons. Well, for what it's worth, on the first day, it did the same as my Olin Chemicals business breakdown. So that can't be true. Literally just looked up the numbers. Oh, that's crushing. Might have done less. No way. Yeah. There's something else at play here. I'm not going to read the numbers out loud, but you can go into the dashboard and look at them. Now, do I think it will be bigger? Yes, 100%. But maybe there's a lagging impact from those 900,000 people making their way from the Twitter. The great story that you told. They didn't need to listen to the podcast because he told the story so well via the tweet. Co-host has just lost all of his energy. It's just basically deflated him. No, it was excellent. Honestly, there's something to that. I do think there's an awareness factor that plays a huge role. And I think it's going to show up in the numbers big time. Sorry, in gloating, which didn't work out anyway. I've completely lost thread of this debrief. It's super interesting. I'm very curious to follow what happens because I think a lot is actually changing with the lack of data that is now accessible post iOS changes and all of the privacy changes. So I'm very interested to see what happens. And if you actually see things start to converge back to the old way where you see these blends, it sounds like there is definitely a blend. And then just businesses building better measuring tools themselves. I think that's ultimately the way things could work. So yeah, it was a fun conversation. Interesting. I think it was outside of what we typically talk about. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, 100%. I would love for Spotify to figure it out. Jonathan didn't make me any more confident about that versus drawing parallels to how Google brought the internet into one neat place for people to go and spend money on random blogs and stuff. We'll see whether that happens. Your anecdote about how Amazon has built an advertising juggernaut and a hair of the time that the podcasting industry is still working its way to $3 billion also made me feel less optimistic. But as we've talked about on this show before, we go in other ways. We zag when other people zig, whatever the expression is. We'll get there. Amen. Awesome. Well, this was a very fun conversation and we look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.